0: Band, and we don't want to take our praise band for granted. Thank you for leading us in worship and getting us ready to hear the word of God this morning. You know, I was uh, thinking about the year 1939 was a very important year in, uh, in history. Um, this was the very year that the world really became embroiled in battle. It was uh, really the, the beginning of World War II, and it involved nearly 30 of the world's most powerful nations. Germany and Italy. And Japan really declared world war on the rest of the world. And they were known as the Axis Powers. And uh, you know, each nation during that time period had to determine their allegiances. They had to determine who their allies were going to be. They had to determine where their loyalties lie. There were two sides, the Allies and the Axis Powers. Well, during that period of time, the United States initially remained neutral. At the beginning of World War II, they were kind of riding the fence. They didn't want to declare their allegiance to anybody initially. They didn't want to declare their allegiance to the Allies or the Axis Axis powers. They were just kind of remaining neutral. And that all changed December 7th, 1941. Just before 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attacked the American ships at Pearl Harbor. And when the smoke had cleared that fateful morning on December 7th, 1941, 19 American ships were destroyed or damaged. 347 American aircraft were destroyed or damaged. 2,335 people lost their lives that morning, and another 1,143 people were wounded. You know, one of the most regretful things about the attack on Pearl Harbor was the mist or ignored warnings about that impending attack. A U.S. naval ship early on the morning of December 7th called the USS Ward, which was a destroyer, spotted a Japanese midget submarine at Pearl Harbor in a place where it should not have been. And so they dropped some what they call depth charges on that submarine and ran it aground. They notified their higher-ups that they had found this Japanese sub at Pearl Harbor. But the higher-ups thought, well... It's just probably an isolated event. They did not know that there were five of them waiting at Pearl Harbor to participate in the coordinated attack. That same morning on December seventh, 1941, a man by the name of George Elliott was manning the radar equipment. And Elliott saw a blurb pop up on that radar, and it looked very large. And so he contacted his commander, Lieutenant Tyler. He said, I see something on the radar. It doesn't look normal. It looks like a big blob. I'm not sure what it is. Lieutenant Tyler said, well, it's probably... A dozen U.S. aircraft flying in from San Francisco, don't worry about it. And so ignoring those warnings proved to be a devastating decision for the Americans at Pearl Harbor. But you know, the day after that attack, the Americans got into the battle. We got into the fight. And this morning, I want to sound the alarm about the pending war that you're going to be facing. There is a world world war that's taking place between two different worlds today. It's a a battle between the war or the world under Satan's command and the kingdom of God under Christ's command. There is a war at stake right now. And it's a battle for your allegiance. It's a battle for your affections. And you cannot be neutral. You cannot sit it out. You cannot ride the fence. You have to determine where your allegiance lies. You know, Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three, 23, He said this, He who is not with me is against me. You cannot be neutral. You have to decide where your loyalties and your allegiance lies. And so this morning, I want you to know how to prepare for this battle. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them up to Genesis chapter 14. We've been in a series entitled Operation Abraham for the last few weeks and this will be the last message in that series as we look out to prepare for the next war a world war and that's going to be the war between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. So in Genesis 14 it says this, verse 14. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 300 And eighteen trained servants who were with him or born in his house. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods. And he also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And verse 17 says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Ketoleamor and the kings who were with him. And let me just say this. The battle of, of worlds is, is going to be taking place after every victory that you face in life. Abraham has had a major victory, and the king of Sodom comes to meet him right after that victory. And, you know, lots of times after a victory, we get so focused on our victory, celebrating our victory, we don't realize there's another attack coming right behind it that we may be unsuspecting about. Well, the king of Sodom came to, came to Abraham after his victory. And so Abraham faced a battle of two worlds. Look at verse 18. Then another king came. His name was Melchizedek, king of Salem. And he brought out bread and wine. And he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, Abraham. And he said, Blessed be Abram, the God of most high, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tithe of all. Verse 21 says, And then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, and you take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of, the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing. From a thread to a sandal strap, and I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me. Aner, Eskel, Mamre, let them take their portion. So in Genesis chapter 14, there are two kings who meet with Abraham on that day, right after his victory. There's the king of Sodom. King The king of Sodom was representative of Satan and his kingdom. That's who he represented. I mean, when you think about Sodom, it was the center of materialism. They had a love of prosperity, a love of wealth. It was the center of materialism. But Sodom was also the center of hedonism. Do you know what hedonism means? It means the love of pleasure. They had a deep love of pleasure, unrestrained pleasure. You know, I read about a hotel in Jamaica just this past week. It's called Hedonism Two, And this is what the The title says to that particular hotel in Jamaica, it says the place where you can be wicked for a week. That's what Sodom was all about. It was the center of hedonism, the center of pleasure, unrestrained pleasure. It was an anything goes type of environment. But you know, it was also the center of humanism. You know, humanism is the idea that man is the center of the universe, not God, but us, man. And so what does humanism do? It takes God and removes Him from the throne and puts man in His place. And we begin to think that we are the center of the universe rather than the God who created this universe. And so Sodom was the center of humanism. Sodom was, the, uh, was, the, was against everything that God created for good, decent, and moral. Sodom was a place that was against and opposed to the kingdom of God. And so the king of Sodom is representative of Satan and his kingdom. But then another king came out to meet Abraham. And his name was was Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And so uh, he represented Christ and his kingdom. He represented Jesus. Melchizedek was like a type of Jesus. He represented everything that was aligned with Jesus and his kingdom. That's who Melchizedek was. Now you might ask, well, where do you see that? in this passage about Melchizedek representing Jesus. Well, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Well, who is the king of righteousness? Jesus is the king of righteousness. The, 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 the Bible says that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. That word Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Anybody know what that word means? It means peace. And who is the king of peace? Jesus is The king of peace. I hope that you know the king of peace. He really is the king of peace. Verse 18 says that Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High. You know, in the Old Testament, a person would be a king or they would be a priest, but they would not be both. It would be either or. And here we find Melchizedek is a priest and he is a king. Do you know that Jesus is the king of kings? Did you know that Jesus is the great high priest? Jesus is the king of kings and the great high priest. And so Melchizedek represented Jesus. And then it says in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Do you know what the bread and wine represented? the, 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 The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you and me. The wine represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you and me. It represents uh, Melchizedek was representative of Christ. Now, some of you might be saying, well, but Jamie, you're just kind of reading that into that text, aren't you? I mean, is that really all there? But I want you to, to write these verses down so you can look them up later. But Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, says this. This is New Testament for the record. It says, Jesus, having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, or just write it down. Hebrews 7 1. You need to read that whole chapter later. But it says in Hebrews 7 1 For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And then it says in verse 3, He was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but made like the Son of God, who remains a priest continually. Jesus is a priest, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest and he is a king. He is the king of righteousness and he is the king of peace. You know, the Bible says that Melchizedek had no genealogy. At least it didn't reveal it to us. And that's how Jesus is. He has no beginning and he has no ending. We just sang about it in the songs that we sang. He has no beginning and he has no ending. He is the priest forever. He is the king of kings forever. The king of kings Did you see all that in there? It's wonderful, isn't it? You know what that means? It means that Jesus is on every page of Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Maybe you're reading the Bible and you say, well, I don't see Jesus. You need to read it until you do, because He is there on every page of the Bible. And so we see Jesus. Now these two kings kings came to Abraham, and Abraham was faced with a choice. Who Who is he going to serve? The king of Sodom? Or the king of Salem? Who? would Abraham choose to serve? To whom would he give his allegiance? And let me just say this, this morning, we all have that same choice. You have to determine who you'll give your allegiance. To whom? The king of Sodom represents the world's influences. And the king of Salem represents the kingdom of Christ. And each of those kings... Is vying for your allegiance. They are uh, aligning themselves and pursuing your loyalty. You're going to either serve the king of Sodom or the king of Salem. There is no middle ground. So I want you to notice some things about the king of Sodom first. I want you to notice that the king of Sodom has a battle plan. Anytime there's a war, there's usually a battle plan. And the king of Sodom had a battle plan. It's not a new strategy. But it's been an effective strategy for thousands of years. And he's used it against us. I want you to notice the first thing that the king of Sodom will do. He will court you. He will court you so that he can lure you away from Christ. The Bible says that the king of Sodom came to Abraham in verse 21. And he said, give me the persons. In other words, you give me the people. And you take all the goods yourself. You take all the riches for yourself. King, the king of Sodom had already been defeated in battle. He had no leverage. Abraham had been victorious in battle. He had all the leverage, and yet he's trying to negotiate with Abraham. He was a loser, and Abraham was a victor. He's trying to negotiate with Abraham. He's basically trying to bribe Abraham with wealth. You know, that's how Satan works, isn't it? He tries to coerce us into buying into his worldview. And sometimes he'll coerce you to pursue wealth, and he lures you away from God. But did you know that Satan, he doesn't have any wealth? He doesn't own a thing. Psalms 24.1 says this, and you ought to write it down. The earth is the Lord's and its fullness. The world and all those who dwell in it, they belong to God. Satan doesn't have any leverage. He doesn't own anything. But yet he's here trying to negotiate and trying to lure you away from Christ and His purposes. You know, basically, the king of Sodom is saying this, Abraham, if you honor me, I'll make you rich. If you honor me, I will make you prosperous. You know, that's the exact same temptation that Jesus—I mean, that Satan uh, put on Jesus. He, he put Jesus there, he said, see all these kingdoms of the world? If you bow down to me, I will give them all to you. Isn't that like Satan? He, he's trying to negotiate out of weakness. That's what he does. He negotiates out of weakness. He's kind of like uh, something that J.B. and I saw on Facebook a few weeks ago when, we were, when I was thinking about this particular message. You know, he, he, he was like what you see on Facebook Marketplace. You know, sometimes on Facebook Marketplace, they'll say, hey, I know what I got, so don't, don't try to lowball me. You ever seen that? Well, I read this one particular article, one particular ad, and it was about a two thousand. GMC Sonoma Pickup, and I don't know if you can read it. It's on the page there, but let me just read it to you. It says this. It was listed about 14 weeks ago in Granite Falls, North Carolina. This is what it says. Driven 174, 288,000 miles. It has an automatic transmission. The exterior color is black. It gets 16 miles per gallon in the city, 21 miles per gallon on the highway, 18 miles to the gallon combined. It has a clean title. This vehicle has no significant damage or problems. Can you see the picture? But he doesn't stop there. Let me read to you the second part. He says, the condition is used, but good. He said, I see this way too much. This is a project that I bought. It needs the carb cleaned. It was running when I parked it. I have no time to finish my loss, your gain. No low balls. Hashtag, I know what I got. That's how Satan operates. That's the kind of offer that he makes to you and me. I know what I got. And he offers that to us. And he gives a good description. I think about... He says, I know what I got. He's offering you in exchange worldly wealth for your allegiance to Christ. He offers you the world in exchange for your allegiance to Christ. Now I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's not wrong to be wealthy. I'm so thankful that God blesses people with wealth. And then they use that wealth to expand the kingdom of God. I am thankful for for those people. I'm thankful for the people that God can trust with wealth. I'm thankful for that. The problem comes when the pursuit of wealth becomes a substitute for the pursuit of God. That's where the problem was, And it begins to lure you away from Christ. It reminds me of about a, a, a rich man who was in uh, Luke chapter 12. Jesus told the story. as a man who had a very productive crop. He had so many crops, he couldn't contain it all. Instead of sharing his wealth, he began to build, build bigger barns so he could keep it all to himself. And then Jesus said to him in, uh, in, in uh, Luke 12, 20, But God said to him, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you provided? So it is for him who lays up his treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, not too long ago, I was at, a, I was at Subway. That's where my kind of lunch hangout is sometimes. And I was, uh, saw somebody I had not seen in a while. We were talking about, I don't know, just a bit different things in life. and hadn't seen them probably for 30 years. And we were talking and I said, you know, I said, I'm not rich as far as the world's concerned, but I am rich in the right place. If you're going to be rich, be rich in the right place. Be rich where it counts. You know, Jesus said to a man one time, He said, what profit does it mean for a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What is it profiting? I mean, even if you could gain the whole world, you couldn't keep it. The Bible says that the world's passing away. You can't even keep it, even if you could gain the whole world. I thought about this. It will pass away or we will pass away. But you can't keep it. You know, even if you could gain the whole world, did you know it wouldn't satisfy you? It wouldn't. You know, J.D. Rockefeller, I never met him personally, but at one time he was the wealthiest man in the world. Somebody asked him one day, they said, well, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Isn't that how we are? Just a little bit more. And if you, if you could gain the whole world, you'd still want the sun, moon, and the stars. You'd want more. That's how we are. If you're going to be rich, be rich in the right place. Store your treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal it. Let me just say, if you're living for pleasure, you're living for just a moment. If you're living for wealth, you're living for a moment. If you're living for your selfish pursuits, you're living for a moment because the Bible says those things will pass away. 1 John 2.17 says, And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. One person said it this way, Living for this world is like painting the deck on a sinking ship. It really is. So Satan will try to court you. The king of Sodom will court you, but he'll try to coerce you. Some people don't, don't even believe there is a real devil. They don't really believe that there really is an evil influence who is trying to coerce you into buying into this satanic worldview. Now you might be here to think, well, you know, I don't believe in Satan. I don't believe in an evil influence. You might be like the boxer who was getting walloped in a boxing ring one day. And it didn't matter what he did. He was just getting beat and pounded. And so when, he, when that bell finally rang and he went over to his corner, he told his manager, he said, throw in the towel He said, this guy's killing me. I cannot stop it. And his manager said, no, he's not not even touched you. He's not even hit you one time. And that boxer said, well, you better start watching the referee because somebody's hitting me. (laughs) And you might be getting pounded in life. And you might be denying that there's a real Satan. Somebody's pounding you because you are in a battle. And you're wondering where it's coming from. But if you don't believe that Satan will coerce you, let me just remind you of what I read this past week about what happened to Hobby Lobby. Some of you may have read what happened to them. Hobby Lobby this past week uh, was uh, required and fined $220,000 because they refused to allow a transgender man to use the women's bathroom who was an employee. Now the Green family who owns Hobby Lobby, they've tried to run that company by their Christian values. They even made and put a unisex bathroom into their business. But that wasn't sufficient. And they were fined $220,000 for that effort. This world is under King Sodom's sway. And he will do everything he can to coerce you to buy into his twisted worldview. We are under the sway of Satan. And he's trying to coerce you into conformity. And there is a battle for your allegiance. So the king of Sodom will court you, he'll coerce you, and he'll try to corrupt you. The king of Sodom wanted to corrupt Abraham. It says there that Abraham, he said to Abraham, take the riches, I'll take the people, and you can just keep those riches. And so he wanted to corrupt Abraham with the world's riches. He wanted Abraham to be connected to Sodom. And so he was giving him these worldly wealth and his worldly riches. That's how that's how the king of Sodom operates. He tries to connect you to this world and pull you in. I remember I was on staff at Mount Calvary some years ago and somebody made a donation to the church. And by the way, we don't know, I don't know who gives what or where it comes from. I don't know how you earn your, your living. I have no idea. I don't know how you, how you get all your money. But this particular person put it in the newspaper that these, this donation came from gambling proceeds. And at that moment, we had to make a decision. So we sent it back To the giver. And we posted a note in the newspaper that says we cannot accept uh, gambling, I mean, proceeds from gambling because we stand against that practice. Now, had we accepted that money, with that advertisement in the paper, the moment that we stood against gambling, we would have been compromised. Satan tries to compromise you, he tries to corrupt you, he tries to make you lose your testimony so you have no voice. That's his heartbeat. He's trying to corrupt you, he's looking for a chink in your armor. I think about the Apostle Peter. He wrote in 1 Peter 5.8. In 1 Peter 5.8, the Apostle Peter says, Be sober. Be vigilant, Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now i got to ask myself, Now how did Peter know that? How did he know that about Satan? Well, he felt it. He experienced it. You might remember the story. In Luke 22.31, Jesus said to Peter one day, He said, Simon... Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. Now i got to thinking about that. Have you ever seen a sifter? When I was growing up, my grandmother used to have a sifter, and she would sift her flour. And she would sift it, and all the pure flour would come out. I thought, well, why would Satan want to sift Peter? I mean, that's like refining it, right? Making it better. Peter, Peter, Satan didn't want to make him better. What's the point of sifting him? But you know, I, I thought about my grandmother's sifter. She would sift that flower, and all that nice flour would come out. But guess what would be left in the sifter? All the garbage. All the imperfections. All the flaws. And I think what Satan was trying to do is say, Here, Jesus, you want to see his flaws? Let me show you his imperfection. Let me show you all his flaws. They're right here. And I think that Satan wanted to embarrass Peter by exposing all of his flaws. And that's what he wants to do to you and me. That's how vicious he really is. He wants to destroy your witness and to corrupt you and compromise you. He's looking for a chink in your armor. And whenever Satan came to Jesus one day, he was tempting him. He tempted him three times. Why? Because he was looking for a chink in Jesus' armor. And he battled with Jesus, but he found none. The perfect, spotless, a Lamb of God. Now, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. It's kind of like a boat. you ever seen a boat in the ocean? The boat is in the water, but it's not of the water. It's floating in the water, but it doesn't belong in the water. It belongs, but it's not part of the water. It's in the water, but not of the water. And It's not a problem for the boat to be in the water. The problem comes when the water is in the boat. That's where the problem comes, when the world is in you. That's where the problem comes. So we have this Battle, and the king of Sodom has a plan. He wants to court you. He wants to coerce you. He wants to corrupt you. But now Abraham was willing and able to withstand the king, the king of Sodom's influence. Why? Because he had already made up his mind where his allegiance lied. He had already made it a determination where his loyalties would be given before the battle ever began. And I want to give you a battle preparation for your life if you're going to be able to stand up to the king of Sodom and Sodom, and Sodom, and Sodom. King of Sodom's enticements. Let me give you some some points. Number one, your first defense is salvation. To be saved by grace, you must be born again. If you want to overcome the king of Sodom, the very first step you need is to be saved, to become a son or daughter of Christ. You know, the Bible says in John 1.12, But as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name. When you believe in the name of Christ, you become a child of God. And everyone here this morning, you are either a servant of Satan or a child of God. You're serving somebody. The question is, which one are you? If you are a slave of the king of Sodom, there's no hope for victory. But if you are a child of God, then you are already on the way to victory. The first step. When you are born again, you know what you do? You declare your allegiance to Christ. You say, I serve Christ. You declare your devotion to Christ. Look in verse 22. That's exactly what Abraham did. In verse 22 it says, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have already raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. You know what it meant for them to raise their hand? A lot like it does for us. To swear an oath. He'd already vowed that I am, uh, my allegiance belongs to God the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Abraham had committed himself to the Lord. But did you know when you profess your faith in Christ, when you are baptized publicly in a baptismal pool just like the one that's behind those doors, do you know what that means? You are declaring your allegiance to Christ, you declare your alliance with Christ. You know, I heard a story about some British soldiers who were riding through a family's cornfield during the Revolutionary War. And little Granny was in the house and she didn't like those British soldiers riding through her cornfield. So she went to the, the fireplace and she got a poker. And she walked out of her house with that poker in her hand. And she wanted to go do some business with those British soldiers. And her grandchildren said, Granny, you need to come back in. You can't, you can't stop them with a the poker. You can't do any good. She said, but I can not let them know what side I'm on. And we need to let the world know which side we're on. Can I say amen? We need to let somebody know whose side we're on. And when we're baptized by immersion, when we, are, when we profess our faith in Christ, when we share the gospel, we're declaring whose side we're on. The first step is salvation. The next step is surrender. You must surrender yourself to God every single day. It's a daily surrender. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says this, and many of you have it memorized I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and He gave Himself for me. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? It means you give God everything you give Him your life, you give Him your will, you give Him your body, you give Him your soul. You give Him your energy, your devotion. You give Him your time. You give Him your service. You give Him every ounce of you. It belongs to Him. You are crucified with Christ. You no longer live. Every fiber of your being belongs to Christ. You know, Jesus died so that, could, so that you could live through Him. But when you die, you let Him live through you. We are died. We've died to Christ. We've surrendered. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Let me ask you this question. Have you died to self? Have you surrendered completely to Christ? Are there passions that you're still holding on to that you know don't belong in your life? Is there a part of your life that you have not surrendered to Christ? You can never be victorious until you surrender completely. Galatians five twenty-four says this, And those who are Christ." have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You put them to death. You surrender. So if we're going to be victorious against the king of Sodom, you need salvation. You need to be surrendered. And then third, you need to be strengthened by the Spirit of God. You need to be strengthened. In Luke 4, verse 1, the Bible says that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Luke 4, 14, it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. In Luke 4.18, Jesus said this: The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. If Jesus needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, don't you think we do? We need to be dependent on the power of the Spirit of God. How much more do we need it than Jesus? We need his Spirit's power. Asa Roku Yamamoto was the admiral of the Imperial Japanese Navy during the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. It's reported that Yamamoto wrote in his diary several months after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and this is what he allegedly wrote. I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Do you know what makes Satan tremble? What makes Satan fear, what makes him shake in his shoes is that a believer, a follower of Christ, will realize the power of the Holy Spirit that is at his disposal. That power that is sleeping in him that we've not allowed for God to use us like he wants to. That's what makes Satan tremble. Can you imagine what it would be like if we allowed the Holy Spirit to empower us like he wants to? The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. The same power that Jesus had access to the Spirit we have access to. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I just, I can't, I can't teach connect group. I can't lead this. I can't serve in this capacity. You can't do it unless the Holy Spirit empowers you. It's kind of like this glove, by the way. On the way to church this morning, I said, glove, would you just get up and hold that steering wheel for me? And it just did that. I said, would you, would you pick up my Bible for me? And it just did that. It didn't do a thing. It just lay there. That's how we are. We're just like this glove. Can't do anything. But when the Holy Spirit puts His hand into you and me, then He can function. He can do mighty things if we will allow Him to fill us and to fill us like this hand fills this glove. And we're empowered. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. You can lead worship. You can teach a connect group. You can lead a small group. You can serve on the mission field. You can do marvelous things if you allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you. But I'll just tell you this. It's foolish to think you can be victorious without the power of the Holy Spirit, because you cannot. If you're going to be victorious, you need salvation. You need to be surrendered. You need to be strengthened. But you know, you also need the Scriptures. The first thing that the Holy Spirit will do in your life is to use the Word of God to equip you, to train you, and to change you. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed or undergo a metamorphosis. By the renewing or the renovation or the changing of your mind, there's a metamorphosis that takes place. And y'all know what a metamorphosis is. It's when that caterpillar goes into that cocoon and comes out a butterfly. It's a metamorphosis that takes place. Some of you want to be butterflies, but you will not allow yourself to be immersed in God's Word so that He can transform you. So, you still stay a caterpillar. And you'll never be a butterfly until you allow God's Word to transform your life and change your mind. When you allow God's Word, when you immerse yourself in God's Word, when you study God's Word and you let it change the way you think, when you let it change the decisions that you make, when you let it guide the way you live, God will use His Word to create a metamorphosis in you. He will transform you. It's a metamorphosis, it begins with the renovation of the mind. You, you, you might be saying, well, Jamie, that sounds like brainwashing. That sounds like indoctrination. Well, it is indoctrination. Did you know that you're already being indoctrinated? Every single day, this world is indoctrinating you with its worldview. Every time you turn on the news, you're being indoctrinated. Every time you listen to the radio, you are being indoctrinated. Through the, through the media, through movies, through music, you are being indoctrinated. Think about billboards. They're indoctrinating you. Did you know that even the commercials that you see on TV today, hardly do they even talk about the product anymore. They talk about the social agendas. You are being indoctrinated by the world. But when you sit down with the Word of God under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, you let the Word of God indoctrinate you so that you can be transformed. Let me tell you why that's so important. When the king of Sodom comes, you you need to know how to respond. And when Satan came to tempt Jesus, have you ever considered how Jesus responded to Satan's temptations? In Luke chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But Jesus answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus answered and said to Satan, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. It is written. He was going to the Scriptures. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It has been said, it has been written. The reason some of you are not being victorious is because you don't allow the Scripture to transform you. i gonna give you one last thing. One last defense, and it's satisfaction. It's being satisfied with the Lord's supply. You know, the king of Sodom Sodom said, Hey, you take all the riches, I'll take the people, and we'll call it even. And Abraham said, Look, I'm not taking one thing from you. From a thread to a sandal strap, I will not take one thing from you I would never want you to say, I made Abraham rich. You know, Abraham had the opportunity to gain wealth quickly. But he did not want to be indebted to a wicked king. He didn't want to be bound to the worldliness of Sodom. Then the Bible says, strangely, that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Why did Abraham give a tithe to Melchizedek? Here's why. Because he realized that his victory was from the Lord. And so he gave back to God because he realized where his victory comes from. And whenever you tithe, and whenever Abraham tithed, he was saying to God, I know where my provisions come from. They come from the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth. When you're tithing, you say, I trust God to meet my needs. When you tithe, you say to God, I am satisfied with your provision in my life. I trust you. I'm satisfied. When you tithe, you're saying to God, God, I recognize that everything belongs to you. Not 10%, but 100%. My bank account, my cars, my house, my recreational vehicles, all of it belongs to you, and my trust is in you. And as we close this morning, I want to give you some things to think about. Today, Maybe later this afternoon, tomorrow morning, the next day, for the rest of your life, you're going to face two kings. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. You're going to face those two kings and you're going to have to make a decision. One wants to bless you and one wants to destroy you. Which one will you serve? Are you prepared to meet the king of Sodom? Have you declared your allegiance to the king of Salem? Are you saved? Are you born again? Have you trusted Christ? There is no victory for you if you've never trusted Christ. Are you surrendered? Have you surrendered your passion? Have you surrendered your possessions? Have you surrendered your affections? Have you surrendered your pride? Are you still holding on to some secret sin in your life that you will not surrender to God? Are you surrendered? You will never be victorious against the king of Sodom until you surrender to the king of Salem. Are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you being transformed by the word of God? Are you taking time to allow the word of God to indoctrinate you? and transform you. Let me ask you this last thing. Are you satisfied with God's provision for you? He has given you eternal life. What more could He give? And when we give back, we're giving out of poverty to to God Almighty who has given us His wealth. Are you refusing to honor God with, with your provision? You can't be victorious until you trust God with your possessions. You will never be. So where do you stand? As we come to our moment of invitation, I want you to be thinking about those things. How do you need to respond this morning? Do you need to come and say, God, I need to surrender. I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need to surrender some things in my life that I'm holding on to. What do you need to do? I want to encourage you to respond. You know, you can, you can go out and not even, not even respond and so say, I'll do that later. And when you do, most of the time, it never comes. You need to make your decisions immediately and respond. Let's let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that you've issued to us this morning. I just pray right now for your Holy Spirit to give us guidance. That you would speak to our hearts, help us to respond to you immediately and obediently. Lord, I thank you for... Sending the King of Salem to give us victory. Giving us the King of Salem so that we can have a life and meaning and purpose and joy. Well, Lord, help us to be prepared for the battle. Or maybe somebody here is not prepared. Maybe they've never trusted you. Maybe today you didn't want to call them. I just pray you help people to respond. If they're outside of Christ, that today they'll respond to the King of Salem. Now, Lord, there's other people that just need to surrender some part of their life. They already belong to you they're holding on to some things that keep them or hinder them, I pray you help them to, to respond. And Lord, we just dedicate this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and as we sing together, would you respond how the Lord leads you? Don't hesitate. Let's stand together and sing. to every question The one solution